Welcome to the broadcast. Every Arizona homeowner's best friend. Thanks for tuning in. It's Rosie on the house. Your weekend wake-up tradition. Inch by inch, row by row. Gonna make this start grow. Come on around back, Arizona. It is Saturday morning. 8 o'clock, the outdoor living hour, the third Saturday of the month. We have notes from the nursery, and generally speaking, Jay Harper is in studio with us, but he's actually out traveling this month, and because we had citrus slated, uh, we thought, well, it's not really a tree, but our tree guy, it's a kind of, it's just a shrub, but our tree guy knows just about as much about citrus as anybody, so we've got John Eisenhower back in studio with us, and I really don't remember why we put citrus in March. You know, our calendars get printed. Uh, it was almost a year ago now because uh, you're kind of uh, at the end of most ripening and we try and time uh, our topics with what's ripening and ready, but uh, they're in bloom. The well, citrus are in bloom. Well, it's one of those kind of conflicts because you've got trees that are are coming in bloom, but they still, a lot of them have fruit on them. So you got to kind of be careful at this time when your trees are putting on bloom not to knock a lot of the bloom off because then you're going to have a limited um, harvest next year because that fruit is setting and it sets on those blossoms so you need to be careful that you don't knock all those blossoms off while you're still harvesting the old fruit fruit. but no we have citrus that, that can be ripe as you know oranges that can be ripe as early as october and then it You've got other citrus varieties that can be ripening as late as May. So you kind of got to know your varieties to know when to pick them. We, we, we had this one tree in our yard that, that I said, this is a crappy um, uh, orange tree. But it was only that it was, it was a late, um, uh, you know, ripening orange, you know, and it was, it was beautiful. Now, we, now that we know that, we just let that one go and start picking it in May. So we let it go through its entire bloom cycle. So that'll have a lot of little tiny uh, new fruits on it for next year um, when we're picking it for uh, for the for the current season. But we wait until about May, and it's super sweet then. And it's actually one of the sweetest trees we have. And it w- we used to think it was the lousiest tree, but it's really, really nice. So, yeah, the Valencias and, and Arizona Sweets um, are – the Valencia is, is an – an early ripening f- orange, and then the Arizona sweets are are, are that late uh, season. So if you've got a couple of those in your yard, you can have basically citrus all season long. All year long. All year long, yeah. Now, that is true, but is it citrus you'll eat all year long? <laughs> <laughs> well, that's just it. We've, we've got a, quite a few citrus trees. We kind of overplanted. Uh, but we're, we do a lot of juicing now. We went ahead and invested in one of those better quality juicers that has a, a handle that you, 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 uh, that gives you some leverage and it's fast and we can juice, uh, you know, a gallon of, of, of juice in probably, you know, 15 minutes after you've of course sliced all your oranges and we kind of have a, put a, get a counter, uh, kind of uh, full of all the citrus that's been washed and ready, and we, we we slice them all, and then we put them on the cutting board and start just juicing away, and it's pretty cool. We, we put them in just those quart jars and just put them in our freezer. We have an upright freezer that we put our elk and deer meat in, 
and it, we got a lot. And your citrus and juice. And our citrus and our palm. We we juice pomegranates too. I've got a customer who's got a big pomegranate tree, and and we uh, juice them just like we juice our citrus. We just cut them in half and and juice away. And the uh, that pomegranate juice is just uh, so so rich in antioxidants and and just really very healthy. And then we'll we'll take a lot of the juice and uh, during the year we'll uh, take a jar out. Of, of the pomegranate juice and, and of thought, and then pour it into ice cube trays. And then we put those uh, little ice cubes of pomegranate juice and drop those in a glass of water. And it's just, you know, a beautiful way to infuse some water with, with juice. And, but it's, it's a way of, of trying to utilize all the juice that you have. You can't consume all the, all the citrus in a season because you've got too many uh, pieces of fruit. But if you can start juicing it, it's worth the investment to think about getting that extra freezer uh, to try to put up some food for uh, for use later during the year, and it's, it gives us a way of stretching that juice um, all through the entire year. Now, do you ever mix any of your juices? I have found that you know one tree. You know, if, if we're just doing this orange tree, we're just doing this grapefruit tree, or mm-hmm. they can be a very overpowering. Uh, flavor and a, and a little acidity too, but if you mix them a little bit, they kind they kind of blend each other out. Yeah, that's a great idea. Some orange and grapefruit juice together. You know, I've actually used some orange juice and and, and apple juice. I know some other folks who who do um, uh, apple and lemon juice, and it's just a really nice way to to cut some of the acidity of the of the of the lemonade. A little apple juice and just really cool combinations you can have out there. In fact, you know at the at the whenever you go to a hotel, they've got that little um, uh, little breakfast bar uh, at the for the free breakfast in the morning. They usually have that little machine with the apple and the orange juice. I always get a double, you know, combine those two and get the apple and the orange together. It's a nice little combination. I hadn't tried uh, cross varieties, stone fruit and citrus mix, but we. We do a lot with the citrus because we'll we've got eight citrus trees, so we'll we'll pick every time it's different. You know, we'll, we'll come back and make our our breakfast drink, and, and every day it's different. You know, but sometimes and and it depends on the ripening too. We've got you know one grapefruit that's got this huge, massive, thick rind, but very little juice inside. Mm-hmm. Then you've got the pink ladies that have very small rind, but just full of juice, full and of juice, just yeah. kind of mix them together and. You taste it like ah, it might too too strong of one flavor. Yeah. So you cut up a couple oranges and blend it well, out. Well, speaking about uh, and then all those rinds, we just go throw back under the tree. And I mean, I know we yeah. could do a better job composting them and then spreading the compost out, but we just throw them straight underneath the tree and let well, them. They're so full of oils. Right they're 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 really hard. They they actually you know dry out like a, a piece of rock. Um, they're really hard in, in to to put into compost. They don't break down very easily. Maybe the ones that are more fleshy, like the grapefruit, might be easier. But the oranges are tougher. But you know, speaking of rinds, there are some ways you can use the rind. You can use uh, your peels, uh, put it in some vinegar, and have a, make a vinaigrette out of it. You can put your just add some orange juice to your vinegar. You can also take the rind and put it into uh, soak it. Uh, in, in some extra virgin olive oil, so you get some infused olive oil with some. Uh, some of the oils are released from the orange peel into the um, uh, the the oil, and you've got this really nice little infused um, uh, extra virgin olive oil. You can also infuse honey uh, using some orange peel as well. 
And of course, you can make orange marmalade. There's lots of uh, recipes out there for using that, that rind from it. Of course, your zest from all of your citrus is really cool for cooking purposes. Now I want some biscuits with you, that orange marmalade. You know what I, you know what I saw, Gary? <laughs> What's I, that? I, I went to a restaurant, and they, um, uh, it was the Hudson restaurant in Sedona. Those of you who know the Hudson and uh, the, the owner is Mark Chigru and a good friend of mine. He um, uh, had his chef make us a dessert and it was a grapefruit grilled with maple syrup. Ooh. And you take the maple syrup, drizzle it on to the, to the grapefruit half, turn it upside down on the grill and oh my goodness, it was really, really good. The, the maple syrup caramelized on the grill mm, yeah, and that, with, that mixed with that tart uh, grapefruit. I tried it at home and it was not such a great success. <laughs> but I'm going to keep working at it yeah. because I know there's a secret to it, you know. But no, that's, um, there's really a lot of great uh, cooking uh, culinary uses for our citrus here in Arizona. And when did citrus first come to Arizona? You know, and it came over from Asia. Yeah, it started in China, where most most all of our citrus originated. I'm not sure when it came to America. I know that as early as the 1800s, for sure. We got have, we have uh, stories of that. But um, in fact, Arizona has quite a a long storied history of of citrus. Of course, it's one of the five C's. In Arizona, you've got your uh, your citrus, your cotton, your copper, your cattle, and your climate are the five C's that kind of drove Arizona's economy. But, you know, Arizona's citrus heyday was between the 50s and the 70s, 1950s, 1970. That was when we used a lot of – we grew a lot of citrus from Yuma all the way to, the, to Phoenix. But um, it became a lot more um, – it was using land for citrus was not that uh, valuable. What became more valuable was what? Selling developers. To developers, <laughs> exactly. So that's where all of our citrus orchards, unfortunately, have gone. Except for little places, there's, you know, still a lot Yuma of citrus still. down in Yuma. Yeah. And there's still, you know, there's lots of groves up in, in Queen Creek and here in the Arcadia area. There's still some groves that are around and out in Mesa. Uh, but you don't see as much as there used to be years ago. It's just, it's kind of sad, but. And I love them because they, they're, they're such good producers and you only need two or three and you can, you don't need a lot of space with the dwarf varieties that they've grafted. You know, almost anybody, even with the tiniest of yard, uh, can get a citrus tree in and have produce right out the back door or the front door. Yeah. You mentioned that they are, you know, technically considered a shrub. Um, some some of our listeners would say I got more than a shrub in my yard because they've got some of these citrus like the lemons and the grapefruit can actually be pretty pretty big trees. Well, but, and then there's uh, the Hotel City Tucson. They've got a two story uh, building in the back. You walk out on the second story and this, you're still looking up at the top of the citrus. They're so wow. massive, but they've got yeah. a, a microclimate that they've built around and. But it, to, your, to your point, there's citrus of every size. You can get little dwarf varieties. We've got a, this little dwarf um, a tangerine tree. It's only about, you know, four feet tall. And it's got eight. It, it finally had eight, its first eight fruits this year. They're still hanging on there. I'm mean, waiting for them to get loose so I can. I don't want to pick them until they're ready. But they're, it's pretty cool when you can have these little smaller trees that go in a small little spot. You can also container grow them, too, if you've got a patio 
that's a really great option, actually. If you get a large container, you know, probably a, at least a couple feet across um, that can hold maybe 20, 30 gallons of, of soil and uh, put a citrus in there, and it can last you many, many years. And you can move it in and off the patio, get it out in the sun. and In the, in the real heat of the summer, you can kind of pull it back in and give it a little bit, a little more shade. So it only gets, a, you know, partial sun during the day. And uh, a lot of people container grow their citrus and in, in very small places, even apartments. Uh, if you've got a little a balcony out on your apartment, you know, you can have a little citrus out there too. And you had mentioned something I wanted you to elaborate on after the break. On, on You're waiting for it to feel right before you pick it. What, what, <laughs> I want you to dive into that. How do, you, how do you know when to pull it off the tree? In the studio with John Eisenhower talking citrus today. If you'd like to join the conversation or ask a citrus question, one 767 4348 That's 1-888-ROSIE4U. Text questions can also be sent to 411-923. And you can email us at info at rosieonthehouse.com. If you've got a question, uh, need, you've got a plant or insect identification you'd like a little help with, you can reach us there. And, John, I had uh, prompted you. You had mentioned you've got this new small tangerine, tangerine, and you haven't picked it yet because you're waiting uh, for the right time to pick it. What, what's going to be your determining factor on when to know to pick that? Well, I was just telling your dad, uh, we usually just wait until the, the citrus drops on the ground, and we go out every day and sort of just pick up the ones that are on the ground because we know those are the ripest ones. That have already fallen off, um, but so you but you would have to do that every day, by the like same you said. Principle, <laughs> yeah. Well, it may may not be every day if I have got out there, but if, in every couple of days we'll see them and pick them all up, and we know they're going to be really ripe. Um, sometimes we'll find some on the ground that the roof rats have have eaten, and and even some of the spoiled ones. Sometimes they'll even spoil on the tree, and then they'll they'll fall off. But the uh, uh, by the same principle, we just, you know, I, sometimes I'm, I'm anticipating there's going to be more falling. Once they start dropping, you know, that they're they're really ripe. Uh, our navel uh, uh, citrus right now is just dropping um, fruit every single day. But I'll just go out and, I'll, and I'll, I'll pick up the ones on the ground, and then I'll go around to all the others that I can see, and I just sort of grab them, you know, and just pull them. And sometimes they'll fall off right in my hand, and I know they're just a day away from falling anyway. So I'll just kind of go, and if they're still really attached to the the stem, I'll just leave them on because I know they're 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 going to be hanging, ripening a little further, sweetening a little bit more, staying on the tree. So it's a little process of testing them, and I do the same with the tangerines because our tangerine tree drops a lot of sheds a lot of fruit. It seems like it comes on and and it's it's done a lot faster than the citrus, which will stay on for several months. The the uh, tangerines are. Um, are, seem to have a little bit shorter uh, life on the tree. So all of a sudden, I, if I'm not out there every couple of days, I'll go out there and I've got, you know, 40 uh, uh, tangerines on the ground. And then I can't tell which ones are spoiled. And I've kind of got to go through them on the ground and cull through them. And there's a bunch that are, are rotten already um, from sitting in the duff, you know, under the tree. So it's better to, uh, then I end up raking the bu- all the debris out from under the tree so that when the new ones drop on the ground, I can at least find them uh, more quickly. Uh, 
but yeah, you, you, I, I go out with the tangerines and the same thing. I start kind of seeing if they'll fall off in my hand before. Sometimes what I'll do too on the when I'm I can't be checking every single fruit is I'll go and I'll shake the branches, get up underneath the, sh- and I'll just go around the tree and kind of shake them gently. See what falls. Yeah, and, and it'll cause a bunch of them to fall. Then I can just col- you know pick those up quickly, and I know they're going to be ripe and ready to go. And shaking it, you know, you're not going to risk losing any of the blooms either. You might actually help pollinate them a little bit. Oh yeah, our, none of our citrus is blooming right now. I, I, I somebody no? was saying they, they, they're they're smelling citrus blossoms in town, and I haven't really. Our our yard's pretty uh, pretty clear, so I, mean, I know it's coming quickly because our our apricots in bloom, and our peaches are all in bloom, and the plums are in bloom. We've got three of them that are. Yeah, they're. A mix of, of you know, the, the the fruit that's still there, but above all the white flowers and that aroma that comes with the bloom. Well, I remember, you know, w- w- the the time of year that um, I, I, I connect with um, the citrus blooms is Easter because uh, our, at our church years ago, we'd always have a, a sunrise service. And I remember sitting out, they used to take the, all the chairs and put them outside, and we had citrus on the church grounds. And the the trees would always be in bloom. You could smell the the citrus blossoms as the sun was rising and having that that that, that sunrise service. But so it it is kind of that's my when I link any time before Easter is you know you're going to get a few early uh, blooming trees, but not that big uh, where all the citrus is you know firing off um, at the same time. Some people are, are are saying, yeah, I don't like that time of year because of all the pollen. You know, a lot of people can't handle all the all the pollen that's in the air that time of year, but it is beautiful, um, a beautiful part of our um, communities when those uh, when you can smell that that beautiful citrus blossom in the air. Now I don't know if this is uh, a fool's errand, but I my picking methods are a lot different. I start on the south side that gets the most sun, and go. in my mind I'm thinking the ones that are inside the canopy, and on the north side they're gonna take a little take longer, mm-hmm. and I can keep them on the tree longer. Uh, so I, I, even if I have to hold the stem and sit there and turn it and turn it and turn it (laughs) and pull, you know, two or three times before it finally breaks off on the south side, I try and get the ones that are in the sun first. I I don't know if it's a fool's errand. No, I think that may, there may be some real wisdom there because those sunnier trees are going to, sunnier fruits are going to be ripening more quickly for sure. We've got John Eisenhower in studio with us, and we've also got a special guest that will be joining us by phone in the next break as well. It's Rosie on the House every Saturday morning. Well, you've heard the term landscaping before. You've heard agricultural before, pretty self-explanatory, but have you ever heard of agriscaping, the concept of merging the two? And we've got a special special guest joining us on the phone uh, to talk about this con- developed concept, agriscaping. Justin Ronner, welcome to the broadcast this Saturday morning. Well, thanks, Romy. It's a beautiful morning to be gardening, that's for sure. It is, and if somebody wants an extended, you know, you're going to get an education here listening over the next uh, few minutes about what agriscaping is, but if you really wanted to extend that and you were just so motivated, uh, you're teaching a class at nine. 
Yeah, we are actually at the Queen Creek Botanical Gardens, and uh, that's accessible if you wanted to sign up for it. It's agriscaping.com forward slash events, and we have a number of live and free events, webinars as well. It actually will be live streamed today, so if you can't make it out to the Queen Creek Botanical Gardens this morning at 9, you can join us live online. Um, but yeah, it's just agriscaping.com forward slash events, and you can sign up for those classes. And talk about this concept of merging the two and how that applies to, you know, our individual properties. Well, uh, in this modern day and age, uh, there's a lot more people trying to grow food at home. I mean, there was over a 47% increase over even last year for people trying to grow food at home. And growing food at home is a little more complicated. You know, we don't have the full sun spaces that everybody else has, uh, or at least where all the data has come from. All of agriculture has hundreds and even thousands of years of ag data that's all based on full sun applications. But in our modern yards, we don't have these huge spaces with a lot of full sun. In, in reality, people are trying to grow trees to create shade. And so the optimal location to grow stuff isn't really in existence or it's much smaller. And so there's this whole new avenue of, of uh, microclimate technology that agriscaping's developed to help optimize what to grow in any square foot within your landscape. And, and what that basically allows us to do is to design a space that is beautiful and so it's not just having to be farm roads and stuff like that we can actually integrate the best of productive agriculture with the best of that ornamental landscaping so that even your hoa would love the look the feel and then you would also love the taste of your yard so you can have your beautiful garden and eat it too it's not picking one or the other you don't have to hide the garden and throw it all in raised beds we can actually be more optimized than that with modern technology integrated into the landscape and bringing all that food tech into the into the space as well all that agri agricultural technology can be integrated into that design to, to make it really easy to manage too and you were talking about you know that direct sunlight and in our yards we have you know that's the first thing yeah. we try and do is shade everything and the and and create that nice tree canopy but you told me something yesterday i never thought i'd heard uh you're, you've got a microclimate that's actually producing cherries off a cherry tree. That is correct. We've uh, proven out six varieties of cherry trees here in the Phoenix market, and uh, we had to create a specific microclimate to accommodate that. And we can also go the other direction. So using microclimates, we live right now in what's considered a USDA 9B. So we're kind of in a 9 to 9B USDA climate zone. And that has a specific limited number of things that we can really grow. A lot of citrus, like we talked about before, beautiful citrus does wonderful here. But um, if you get your microclimate dialed in, you can actually extend and expand your options to up to 11 in terms of the USDA climate zone 11. So that's like doing a lot of tropical stuff, things that they're growing in Florida. So we're growing, you know, we can grow avocados and bananas and mangoes and peaches, you know, I mean, just a lot of that cool tropical stuff. And then we can go all the way to a six which is more like Oregon, where we can then grow cherry trees. And so it's all how you contour and how you design your landscape, how you basically set it up for success so that uh, what you want can actually be grown in your yard. And that's another thing that obviously what agriscaping has done to help make it possible to extend your seasons and really grow year round and have a more variety of things that you can grow in your own landscape. And you mentioned avocado, which is really interesting to me because that's probably the number one 
uh, tree we turn people away from planting when they when they're trying to do their own yard well can I get an avocado can I get an avocado we haven't had great success and I know Dave Wilson nursery the big tree grower uh, has been trying to graft a lower uh, a, a variety that would do better in the desert uh, but I I don't know microclimate was part of that uh, part of that equation. Yeah, and my and the microclimate for a to get it to really work and to get the varieties that already exist. So I love that Dave Wilson's working on grafting some, trying to get something that's going to work here even even better. But with the varieties that already exist, one of my favorites that's been most productive is a Brogdon variety. Um, but even the Brogdon or the Joey or the Aravipa, which is a very popular one among the, the, the rare fruit growers here in Arizona. Those things can work, but you really got to make sure the soil's dialed in, the microclimate's dialed in, and that you've got an ambient humidity. So a lot of times it's water features that we work with clients on. We create a water feature. So again, we're making a beautiful little landscape feature. We got this thing, but it creates the ambient humidity so that when they flower, they actually can set the fruit. Because if the surrounding air around an avocado isn't moist enough, that's not going to set fruit. It's not going to hold the fruit. And uh, it's just going to dry crack and the fruit's going to fall off if it even forms at all. And so there's a lot of those conditions that need to be taken into consideration for especially an avocado. So I would say on a scale of 1 to 10 in terms of difficulty in the Arizona climate, growing an avocado is around an 8 or 9. And so you really got to make sure you got your soil dialed in, you got your microclimate dialed in, and you got that ambient humidity component available for that plant in order for it to be successful. And again, you can design that all in so it's beautiful. It's not like you just have to have these funny-looking misters sitting outside, you know, in your landscape with four feet of mulch uh, and, and trying to get this one avocado to grow. You don't have to spend all that time that, doing that. You can design it so it looks beautiful. That, that, that could be an expensive avocado. <laughs> yeah, it's a, well, and we, we joke about that, you know. If you get it right, you've got a cost-effective avocado. You've got cost-effective tomatoes. But if you do it wrong, you end up with a $24 avocado. And... Uh, and on average. And so that's, that's expensive, you know, and, and cool to talk with friends about, but maybe not the best way to offset your living expenses. And microclimates take time to create. So it might not be that that's the first thing you plant. You get your, you plant the other things that are going to create the microclimate, but it takes a couple years for them to grow into maturity, for them, the soil amendments to get just right. And, you know, that, that's a stage two or three build out. Uh, Correct. Getting there. And so designing it is really important. And that's what the class over at the Queen Creek Botanical Gardens is all about. It's about that designing process. Because with an avocado specifically, yeah, you're exactly right. You've got to design the space around it. you really got to grow the soil first before you consider the avocado. And then because the avocado loves to be in almost full shade to start out here. But then as it matures, in order for it to really produce, it needs to be in full sun at the top. So it's Full shade at the bottom and then full, full sun at the top. So how do you create that? And so it, it is a, because it's a canopy type tree. It's one that loves to start off in the shade in this, you know, a jungle type environment. And then it peeks through the top of the sub canopy and then it creates its own canopy up above that. And that's where they're most successful. And if you go to California and find the massive ones growing over houses, it's, they, they started in that exact way that I'm describing. They started off in the shade, but then grew themselves above the house. Obviously, they have tons of ambient humidity, you know, really good draining soil, and then it grows out over the top of that. So in order to create that same situation, you have to design it and be very deliberate and give yourself kind of a three-year game plan to make an avocado really successful. I mean, there's some, 
There's been thousands of, of avocado trees sold in Arizona. I know of eight that are very productive. <laughs> so just to give you an idea. And these are very productive. I mean, literally hundreds of pounds of avocados growing off of one tree. And so it can be done, but it, it is a very designed and, and deliberate process that you need to have a, a three-year commitment to. Okay. Can you grow it from a seed? Like if you've got an avocado at a store, instead of the, throwing away the pit, can you plant it and give it a shot? You can certainly give it a shot. The question's going to be, what are you going to end up with? And that's, that's the, the crapshoot. That's the gamble right there. You know, it, 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 we don't know what you're going to end up with or if you're going to get fruit at all. And so that's the biggest challenge. Most of what we find success with is grafted varieties from trusted sources. Um, and that's where we know we can, we can count on a success and the type and variety that you're probably looking for. So that's, that's kind of how we go. And the other thing is knowing if it's an A or a B type, because there are some cross-pollinating that are required with certain varieties. Some are self-pollinating, some are not. Now that's one spectrum on the tropical side, I want to go back, and, and the, the key there was the, the microclimate and the, the additional of uh, moisture to the air for setting the fruit. Well, talk about how you got the, the cherry tree and one of the tricks you can use with water in a different type of form to enhance your chill hours. I, I wasn't sure at first when we were talking about yeah. it if you were pulling my leg. <laughs> well, what we had talked about was basically you can use ice. You can literally, over the winter months, it's like if you need to increase your chill hours, you can literally just have a party. You know, if you got some beers or drinks and stuff, just pour all the ice water out on the root base. So all around where the roots are for that tree can help increase the amount of chill hours experienced by the tree, thereby increasing that requirement in order to help them set fruit. And, and that's one way to do it. And you can't see it, Justin, but John Eisenhower sitting here bobbing his head up and down. Yes, like... you. <laughs> <laughs> Hang on. Oh, oh, you were about the beer party? <laughs> he was wondering when the beer party is. Is that what he was wondering? Yeah, yeah. me in too. <laughs> uh, that's, 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 that's good. I, I love that. Yeah, chill those those roots and, and, and trick the tree into thinking that it's it's really cold out. That's great. Exactly. And and all you need is, is sub, sub 45 degrees. That's considered a chill hour. So for every hour that you got ice on that, that's a sub 45 degree hour. And so if you're mm -hmm. keeping track on, on where your chill hours are, any, any degree, any hour below 45 degrees in your area, then you can, you can basically just add on the extra that you might need with some hours with some ice. Yeah. And if you're running and, short, uh, you just throw another party, right? Yeah. Just throw another party. And that's the way to do it. And that's, that's the community <laughs> approach. That's kind of what that's, Agri-Seeding's about. Absolutely. It's, it's all about the community. <laughs> and and yeah, so yeah. then instead of bringing your own beer, it's bring your own beer and ice. <laughs> yeah, there you go. Bring your own ice. Yeah, that way your friends are bringing half the ice load. <laughs> yeah, there you go. And and now the ice looks going to be in. You know, people are going to have their yards with their ice piles, you know, in their front yard. Right? <laughs> so these are all uh, techniques to this concept of agriscaping, merging agriculture and landscaping into your home to grow more than just, uh, you know, your traditional row vegetable garden or uh, a couple of fruit trees. And Justin, uh, one more time. Uh, mention how somebody could join the class, and then after the break, let's talk about the Queen Creek Botanical Gardens because that's a, a really amazing story. And if somebody hasn't been out there yet, uh, just what what a treasure that's gonna that's become. You bet. So the easiest way to find the class is agriscaping.com forward slash events. So agriscaping.com forward slash events. A g r i s c a p i n g dot com forward slash events. 
And today's event is free. You can uh, watch it on the live stream on a computer by going there. Or if you can get to or you're in Queen Creek, you know, the class starts here in about 15 minutes at the Queen Creek Botanical Gardens. And we'll talk about those gardens right after this. know what exactly it takes to classify as a botanical garden and i don't know though before the queen creek was built when the last one was added to the state <laughs> but we've got oh, a new botanical garden ago. go ahead 50 years ago yeah that's probably the last one so it, the a botanical garden get registered we're actually registered on two different um registries so the the uh, national, basically the National Registry of Botanical Gardens, as well as the Japanese Botanical Gardens. And we're actually on an international list for that one. Not so much for what we already have, but what, we, what we've designed and what's being implemented. So botanical gardens essentially need to be a, a source for education, uh, for experimentation, uh, as well as display of specific varietals. And so we have to have signage and those kind of things. And, uh, and that we're doing it within practices that track all that data. So it's a, it's a research-oriented, typical type space um, to be a botanical garden, and that's kind of what happened for this one. It's been a number of years in the making, and I, you know, we're, like you noted, it's kind of a, a little gem, a little secret. Not too many people know we exist. And you got a really great piece of land for it, right between an old pecan orchard and the Queen Creek Equestrian Facility. Yeah. So it's, it's, uh, it's an agritainment space. That was one of the first things we did is we rezoned the entire, all the acreage uh, there as agritainment, which was kind of a new classification, fits under the similar categories like Schneff Farms or the Queen Creek Olive Mill. And, um, and to move that along, and then what we did is then bring in the botanical garden component as well as a regenerative lake. So it's a master plan. There's, there's about 50 acres of land that have been master planned, and the garden is on about 10 acres of that. Uh, you know, with a lake with its own um, water source, we have our own well, and so we're basically it's a giant aquaponic system. So we're raising fish in the in the lake, and then the fish water is used to then water all the plants on site, as well as the commercial properties that are adjacent, as well as the subdivision that's adjacent to it as well. So there's a lot of a lot of big planning that had to go into the creation of this garden, but it, it's truly a a little gem, a, a sacred little space to to learn and grow and learn about. Learn about these agriscaping type technologies, all this uh, urban growing methods, as well as using old school stuff. We've got an old mill there. It's uh, the, only, the only fully functioning uh, industrial age water mill there uh, west of the Mississippi that we've got there on site. And it's got museum grade equipment. We're actually working on getting them refurbished to the point that we can even sell the more of the, the wheat. We have, we've got a pecan cracker and a sheller and all that stuff. So with the you know, 3,000 pecan trees that are just north of it. We have access to a lot of that, those nuts that are able to be brought in and cracked and shelled and stuff in that, in that big mill. 
John, you crept up to the mic like you had something you wanted to, to insert or ask. No, I had no idea this mill really got me curious. I've got to come out and check this out one day. Yeah, this that's sounds like a really, really a great operation. And something yeah. like that, Justin, you elaborate on. I mean, that's not something, like you said, that you could source locally. It's the only one west of the Mississippi. I mean, it, you had to go find this technology out of state. Yeah, I mean, it, it, we had a guy hunting. He went through about 40 different old mills and barns all, all on the East Coast just finding parts <laughs> to, to put this thing together. And, and uh, a lot of authentic components. We had to obviously fabricate some components in order to get it all working and get it right. You know, had to design a whole flume system uh, that we custom built just to, to make the, the system work and make this beautiful little waterfall and then how we can throttle up the water and throttle down the water from the hilltop. Uh, to turn the wheel on and increase the power and then all the wheels inside the, the facility and how, how they can turn on different machines. I mean, it's, it's a fun learning experience as well as it's, it's just a, a fun way to recapture a little bit of the energy that's utilized in the pumping of water and moving water here and there. Uh, it, it's, it's a beautiful little, I should call it a little mill. It's not a really big mill. To me, it's kind of big, but uh, you know, it's a, it's a, I think it's a 12 and a half foot, high uh, water wheel, but beautifully placed with a little mill pond that then spills into a much larger uh, pond. We call it our lake, our pecan lake. Nice little mill stream up at the top. And the whole mill creek at the top of the hill has actually got uh, medicinal plants because this is pretty much the world's first all edible botanical garden. So everything in there is edible or medicinal. It's something that, that has value to humanity more than just to look good. And so we've got all these medicinal plants actually integrated right into the landscape. A lot of chamomile blooming right now, a um, lot of other herbs. And we've got English garden. We've got a Japanese garden, a Vietnamese garden, an Italian garden that we're starting to work on. We've got this beautiful Mediterranean ancient olive tree grove that we've got there in the back. So a lot of different elements that are integrated into it, as, as well as cultures that we have on display as well as interaction. I mean, it's the only garden I'm aware of you can go and actually with the gardeners can help you taste the beauty that's right there. Edible flowers, you know, we've got sugar cane that's, that we're harvesting right now that people are able to, to taste as they come in and experience the garden. So a lot of fun stuff. And yeah, I noticed you mentioned a lot of cultures in there, but I didn't hear anything about Cajun. I mean, where's the alligator? Yeah, where is it? <laughs> <laughs> Man. Well, we haven't added that part yet. The, the swampiness, we, that was a little tougher to pull off. <laughs> and where, where, did, where is the Botanical Garden located? What's the major crossroads? Major crossroads are uh, Riggs and Ellsworth down there in Queen Creek. You can find it online at qcgardens.org. That's the easiest place to find it. And on Google, if you just Google Queen Creek Botanical Gardens, it hits the spot right on the, right on the head. You, easy to find. Justin, thanks for spending a few minutes with us to talk about this concept of agriscaping and bring the, the botanical gardens to our listening audience. I know you're going into a teaching class for agriscaping here in just a, about five minutes. So again, if you go to agriscaping.com slash events, you can uh, sign up, stream it, because uh, uh, or if you can get to the botanical gardens in the next four minutes, uh, or just go visit the botanical gardens, stroll around, walk, and check out this new this new creation right here in our own backyard and john eisenhower thanks for spending a little time this morning talking citrus you bet a lot of fun